welcome to Asia Rising. I'm Nick Bisley, the Executive Director of La Trobe Asia here at La Trobe University. And with me today is Dr. David Envol from the Australian National University, a Japan specialist. And we're going to be talking about Japan's role on the global stage and particularly the re-energized place that Japan is, is taking both on the global stage and in the region. So I guess we'll start, David, with the big picture. Since Prime Minister Abe returned to power in December 2012, he's visited 47 countries, most recently finishing off a nine-country whistle-stop tour of the Caribbean, and I believe he's headed to South Asia for a trip to India, and particularly to meet Prime Minister Modi, with whom he shares a great deal, it is said. So what's behind this globetrotting? It's a real diplomatic speed dating, if you like, going on. Well, there's an effort, thank you, Nick, for uh, Japan to build up its international role, and particularly uh, around the East Asian region, but also uh, more broadly, as you mentioned, South Asia and elsewhere in the world. I think there's a real effort on the Japanese government's part to engage more actively with the region on a number of fronts economically, um, but also uh, in the security sphere and in the overseas development aid sphere. There's a number of policies that are changing in Japan with regard to that uh, at the moment. Uh, A lot of what is driving this, of course, is the changing dynamics of uh, the power balance in uh, the Asia-Pacific, and in particular Japan's uh, relations with some of its neighbours, notably China. So there's an effort by Prime Minister Abe and others to build up closer relations with a number of countries uh, around the region as a way of uh, hedging against changing power balances in the region. Do you think there's an extent to which there's also a kind of both a diplomatic and an economic kind of competition with China that's being played out so that, you know, we forget because Japan's been so quiet for so long that Japan is still, you know, the world's third largest economy. It's a big exporter. Do you think Abe is sort of seeing what he's doing as part of a a broader competition with China? I think there's a competition element. I think Japan has always seen itself as the Asia representative on the wider world and it's been the dominant economy. It's led economic growth of the latter part of the 20th century and its economic model influenced a lot of other countries in the region. And of course, with the rise of China over the last couple of decades, that's changed quite substantially. So there's competition to maintain a a leadership role in the region, both uh, in terms of economics and also diplomacy. But I think there's a domestic dimension as well. Abe's government is responding to kind of the stagnation that you mentioned in the Japanese economy over the last couple of decades. So this is part of Japan trying to itself become more economically active, more engaged in the region, more competitive. And it ties in with some of Abe's economic reforms, um, you know, the famous Abenomics, you know, monetary reform, fiscal reform, and also potentially structural reform to yeah. the Japanese economy. Abe's famous three arrows. The three arrows, yes. Uh, two of which have been fired, apologies. And the third one is, is a little bit stuck because it brings into, into light a number of interests that are not necessarily on board with liberalising Uh, the economy, for example, or joining uh, free trade groups such as the Trans-Pacific Partnership and negotiating on that basis, or in bringing about other changes, so greater workforce participation, greater female workforce participation in particular. So what the Abe government is doing regionally, it kind of also ties in with this effort to say Japan is back in the world. There's that uh, moment where Prime Minister Abe was in Washington, I think he was speaking at CSIS, and gave this speech the speech was delivered, I think, in Japanese, but he said in English, I'm back and Japan is back. Japan is back. And that, yeah, it's a nice little s- signal, but I mean, it's a really obvious signal in one basic sense. But you see this well, biggest picture they're trying to paint on the canvas whereby foreign policy and all of these activities are part of, you know, an overarching theme. 
Ame is probably best known in East Asia, and particularly in China, if you read the, the popular press at any rate, for being assertive, possibly somewhat, some of the more over-the-top depictions as being militaristic. But the centrepiece of this, of course, is the, the recent constitutional reinterpretation, whereby the government has essentially sought to expand what it is the self-defence force can do. So what was going on here with this reinterpretation? Slightly arcane for people who might be cursory observers of Japan. What was he doing and, and why, why is an interpretation of the constitutional text so important? Well, it's important for a number of reasons and it's part of a wider security reform package that fits in with the economic reform. And this is something that's been close to uh, Abe's heart for a number of years since he was first Prime Minister in uh, 2006-07. It's basically about reworking Japan's defence institutions from the post-war period, when Japan is this kind of passive pacifist that had a, what's often seen amongst the Japanese conservatives as an abnormal international role, uh, depending on the United States for its security, not engaging with the wider region in terms of uh, helping allies or partners or being involved in United Nations peacekeeping, for instance. So the constitutional reform is at the heart of this wider security reform. It involves things like upgrading the uh, Japan Defence Agency 2006-07 to the Ministry of Defence. Uh, it involves uh, changing Japan's grand strategy from the north to focus more on the southwest and maritime disputes. And it's about making the Japanese defence forces uh, more flexible and more able to respond and in particular cooperate with allies and partners. So constitutional reform in particular is about changing Japan from a defence-only country where you know Japan can only defend itself to allowing it to defend its allies and partners. The problem, of course, is the constitution is written in a way that really prohibits this and it's been interpreted by the Japanese government as you know, very strongly prohibiting collective self-defence. Abe's preference, I think, and certainly this is something he expressed when he was prime minister in 2006-07, has been to revise the constitution. Now, unfortunately, constitutional revision in Japan requires a two-thirds majority in both houses of the parliament, the Diet, and also a, a majority in a, a national referendum. So it's a, it's a difficult task. It's a bit like getting constitutional reform in Australia. Abe has instead taken a, a different approach and has sought to reinterpret rather than revise. And this is basically the government stating its interpretation of the constitution and behaving as if that is a legal change. Yeah, so you had this the constitution which... I mean, it's also important to emphasise, this was written by the Americans, yes. basically said, take it or leave it, in yep. 1947, signed, Article 9, says in very plain terms, there will be no war material maintained or renounced war as a, as a tool of statecraft. And yet over time, through the Cold War and beyond, this interpretation, bending, if you like, the, the constitutional constraints came in. And so Abe's reinterpreting is the latest in Iteration. a number of, of ways in which this thing has been reinterpreted. How is this playing domestically? Problematic on a number of areas. I mean, some people uh, agree or disagree with the aim in terms of defence policy. You know, Japan should be more active or it shouldn't be more active. But other people have real problems with moving around the constitution in this way. So not taking it to the parliament and not taking it to a referendum. Uh, Abe's own poll ratings uh, since this was announced have dropped quite substantially. I think about 10 percentage points. And it's uh, set off a number of protests and complaints. Uh, Abe has also had uh, a number of problems uh, negotiating this reinterpretation with uh, his party's main uh, coalition partner in government, the New Kometo Party. And they're very much uh, historically have been opposed to these kind of reforms. They've been a pacifist party. 
they're backed by um, one of Japan's largest Buddhist organizations. And so this is very unpopular amongst the, the rank and file of, of Abe's coalition partners. Abe, in fact, was forced to renegotiate the kind of reinterpretation that he wanted. And the new Komeito party was able to put a number of restrictions on how collective self-defense can be employed, interpreted. So, for example, they've required that Japan's survival must be at risk, that there must be no alternative course, and that uh, only minimum force can be used. So there's been a number of restrictions. So in practice, I think this change will be less significant than perhaps some people believe. It's the fact that the government has gone from one interpretation to another that's important. But in terms of realistic policy change, it's less significant in the first instance, at least. Yeah, because this is, as you alluded to earlier, this is uh, Abe's second go-round of the Prime Minister's office. And the first time around, I think he really suffered politically from getting a bit ahead of public opinion on constitutional change in general. So it seems, I think, in this case, they're being a little bit more cautious. Yes, they're taking a bit of a hit in popularity, but it's nothing like what happened last time around when he was floating a more ambitious version of constitutional change. Reinterpretation is a problematic way to do it because it bypasses the parliament, it bypasses the people. It's a result of the Japanese judiciary uh, absenting itself from any judgments relating to national security. So the Supreme Court has seen in the past that issues relating to Article 9 of the Constitution are to be decided by the politicians. And this is the reason that we've had this process of reinterpretation done by the government rather than necessarily the courts. But I think because Abe's you know, announced that he wants to do it from a long time ago, and it's such a big issue, I think that kind of uh, moving around what would normally be the, the appropriate processes has been problematic politically. That's probably a useful link to uh, Abe's recent visit to Australia. So the constitutional change was announced from the Cabinet Office on, I think, Tuesday the 1st of July, and then on Tuesday, the 8th of July, Prime Minister Abe addressed joint sitting of the Australian Parliament, first Japanese Prime Minister to do that. There was, a, I think, a degree of symbolism in that week in between, not only because it's, you know, it's a nice period, give you time to reflect on it, but because I think Australia has been a very keen supporter of this for a while, and not just the Abbott government. I think governments of both stripes have been supportive of a Japan that kind of does more in the region within certain constraints. What did you make of Abe's visit to Australia, particularly in the context of this broader effort that he's undertaking of reforming the economy and making Japan a sort of more visible, more influential player in the region? Do you think it succeeded? And what do you think are the sort of consequences for Australia of, of this cozying up with a more confident Japan? They're good questions. In terms of Japan, I think this is part of Abe's uh, active diplomacy around the region, you know, engagement in Southeast Asia with the Philippines, I think you mentioned India is another example. Abe has sought to engage more closely with a number of countries around the region, and Australia is another example of that. I think it was particularly important for Abe because it came in the wake of these constitutional announcements. It was a way of perhaps sending a, a message to the wider region that Japan is changing its approach to security, it's changing its relationships with countries in the region. And I think for him it sent quite an effective message of engagement and responding to the changing balance of power. Whether it was well received in, in the region, I think, is another question. Uh, for Australia, it's both a significant opportunity, particularly in terms of the trading relationship, Well, I think more perhaps needs to come uh, in the future uh, for that to be seen as a real positive. It creates some dilemmas, though. In particular for Australia, it creates the dilemma of, is this a sign of emerging rivalry in the Asia-Pacific? And is Australia being dragged into this kind of rivalry in, in supporting 
particular sides, making statements uh, such as our closest friend in Asia, that kind of thing. Is Australia upending its traditional approach to not having to choose between different countries in the region? So it creates some challenges in that respect because uh, these kind of announcements are seen in a fairly poor light in Beijing. And it seemed really that whilst both sides of politics have generally sought for Japan to be more normal in, in the sense that you mentioned before, I think the Abbott government has been much more not just enthusiastic about Japan and enthusiastic about Abe, and it does seem to be a personal connection between Abe and Abbott. They seem to see the world in very similar ways. But there's also, I think, there seems to have been a pretty concerted effort really from the moment they took office to signal to China in particular that Australia and Japan see the world and the region in a particular way so that there was the best friend in Asia, which was just, you know, I tend to think that was kind of diplomatically clumsy because, of course, when you say Japan's our best friend in Asia, everyone, the Singaporeans, the Indonesians, the Thais, everyone goes, what about us? It's just a clumsy thing to do. It's been the more pointed things. When the Chinese announced their air defence identification zone in the East China Sea, Australia's response in a press release issued by the foreign minister echoed the language of the Japanese. Australia's done this repeatedly, saying we oppose any effort to change the status quo. And of course, in the dispute in the East China Sea over the island that the Japanese call the Senkaku, the Chinese call the Diaoyu, it's precisely the status quo which is in dispute. Australia has, in this dispute in the East China Sea, really clearly signalled that it's taken a side. And, and you saw, or at the tail end of uh, Prime Minister Abe's visit, Julie Bishop, the foreign minister, reported in the Fairfax Press as saying, we've got to talk tough to China. It's the only language they understand. So is the relationship with Japan pulling Australia into a more competitive posture with China? Or do you think that's a bit of diplomatic rippling in the waters that can ultimately be managed through normal processes of diplomacy? Or, or are we seeing the beginning of a larger trend in which there is a division in the region and we're on one side of it. I don't think Australia's crossed a particular um, point where it can't pull back, but I think there has been a shift. Both countries certainly have been supportive of closer relations with Japan, both in economics and security. I think the Abbott government has been different in its emphasis compared to the previous Labor governments, but also compared to the previous Howard government, which was very careful to stay balanced between the different powers in the region. But I think certainly in the coming years, the pressure will increase on Australia. It will become harder to strike this balance. And the status quo in the region, Australia wishes to maintain the status quo, is perceived in some ways quite differently by different countries in the region. And China, for instance, sees Japan as having changed the status quo, particularly over the Senkakudaoyu Islands, when it nationalised the islands. That, from the Chinese perspective, was changing the status quo. Mm. China sees Japan's constitutional revision as changing the status quo. Through the Cold War, Japan is this uh, is a pacifist actor. It's an abnormal actor in the region's security affairs. It plays a very low-key role. If Japan is now moving to play a much higher profile in the region, then that's a, a change from the status quo from that perspective. So where do you think this is all going? I guess there's two questions about the future. One is, what are Abe's prospects? You know, Japan has been notable, as you know well, for really with the exception of the period of Koizumi's uh, prime ministership, the so-called karaoke prime ministers, you know, everyone gets a turn. Do you think Abe is likely to be a long-lived PM or do you think his popularity that's declining now is going to continue? He's closing in on two years. I think he'll see through until the next election at least. His popularity is still very strong. It's still above 40%. Much depends for Abe on his economics package rather than some of these security issues. And that was his problem first time around. 
he talked about Japan becoming a beautiful country and uh, increasing uh, you know, patriotic education and becoming more nationalistic, but his economic reform packages failed. And I think so Albanomics, again, is the key to his political success. And Japan, he needs to have structural reform bring benefits in the longer term if he's to um, remain in power. The Japanese public, I think, still, in terms of what they consider important issues, defence is still lower down the order than prosperity and growth and employment. So Japanese voters are like voters anywhere. It's their, yes. it's their hip pocket first. Finally, I mean, assuming the economy, he gets some movement on the economy, things continue to grow as they have in the past few quarters. Are you someone who thinks Japan is likely to, to really begin to do more on the back of this constitutional change that we will see in five years' time, ten years' time in Japan that is, I guess, militarily a bit more like South Korea than it currently does? I think that remains to be seen. I think there's a, a legitimacy problem with the way it's been done, and that may prevent engaging more actively in the region. The restrictions uh, put on, on collective self-defence at the present uh, don't allow Japan to engage in United Nations peacekeeping. It's very much going to be about Japan's national security, security in the, in the areas surrounding Japan. So I think there'll be limited change. As with many things in Japan, it's, it's often a period of accumulating change, incrementalism, and nothing is necessarily spectacular. So I think there'll be developments I mean, much depends on, on whether the region can find a way of negotiating through some of the territorial disputes that are currently underway, both in the East China Sea, but also in the South China Sea, which Japan sees it's in its national interest as well for economic and trade reasons. So there you have it, folks. It's not 1935 again. I, I tend to agree. I think change in Japan and the kind of role it plays in the region is going to be much more incremental than, than revolutionary. I think over time, though, what Japan does in 10 years will not look at all like what it did in the past. But the sort of critics who kind of think, you know, the Japanese militarist is like an alcoholic and that the constitutional interpretation is the liqueur chocolate and it's all, you know, two steps away from 1935 constantly is, I think, really misunderstands the situation. Japan's a very different country. And people are very concerned in Japan about civilian control of the armed forces and acting responsibly in the region. The Asia-Pacific isn't as it was in 1935. Japan's not the dominant economy in the, in the region like it was at that time. It's nowhere near that. Um, so Japan has to engage more actively with not just the West, but Asia as well. The problem, of course, is miscalculation. I think that's one of the chief risks in the Asia-Pacific at the moment, that a crisis will emerge and the countries aren't prepared to be able to resolve those crises easily. I think that's all we have time for. But thank you very much, David. Uh, thank, thank you. Thank you, the listener. You can follow the activities of the Trobe Asia through our website, is thetrobe.edu.au forward slash Asia. You can follow me at Twitter at Nick Bisley. Thanks for listening.